is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Happens the FDA has given full approval to Pfizer's COVID vaccine for people 16 plus. How will that approval change things? Will it convince more employers to implement strict vaccine mandates for workers? And for those with COVID, we could soon see some major advancements in how the virus is treated. Now, hospitals are once again filling up with COVID patients and Many of the country's biggest hospitals, they're facing nursing shortages. And companies trying to figure out how to balance a return to the office with working from home. But we start with the FDA giving full approval to Pfizer's COVID vaccine. Used to be under the emergency use authorization. Dr. Norman Baylor, president and CEO of Biologics Consulting, used to be at the FDA. So doctors, some are wondering why it took so long to get here. Others think uh, it was too soon. It was rushed. Give us some perspective on how the vaccine gets full approval from the FDA. Okay. Uh, Well, if people are saying what took so long or why did it take so long, I I think we're in the middle ground. And so basically the FDA was reviewing hundreds of thousands of pages and uh, really analyzing the data, inspecting the facilities. And if you look at it, this is one of the fastest approvals of a BLA in the history of of FDA, if not the fastest four months versus uh, a six month. Uh, which uh, it was targeted for January. So pretty fast. Where do you fall on this idea that some people were waiting for this seal of approval? And when asked, why don't you have your shot yet? They say, I'm waiting. I'm waiting until they they officially deem it safe and effective. Um, The other side of that is, no, of course not. People look for an excuse. They'll move on to another one. This isn't going to have everybody racing out and getting their shots. Uh, Where do you fall on that spectrum? Well, prior to the approval today, over probably 170 million or so Americans had already taken the vaccine under the UA. So I'm not sure waiting uh, longer for the vaccine to be approved uh, really provided any, you know, additional information for those individuals who may have been hesitant. But I guess if the approval makes them more comfortable, uh, then I acknowledge, uh, you know, their their opinion. Now, what about parents who might be waking up today to this news and thinking, well, wait a minute, uh, the full approval is 16 and over, but my kid who's 12 can get it still under the emergency authorization. Why is that? That's because the FDA hasn't completed uh, all of the review of the data. And, and, and in fact, some of the manufacturers have not submitted an app, uh, a supplement uh, to include those kids uh, a, a, as low as 12 years of age. So that needs to go through approval as well before that before that happens. But in the interim, given that there, it is under EUA, uh, those uh, kids tw- uh, 12 and above uh, should be uh, they're they're good to go as far as getting the vaccine now. There's where, no need for them to wait. Where are we with uh, Moderna and uh, Johnson and Johnson? Uh, Moderna, uh, you know, and, and I, I can only tell you the tea leaves since I don't, I don't work for FDA, but uh, they submitted a month or so after the uh, after Pfizer. So they will they should be I would say this fall they would be approved. That was my guess. And uh, Johnson and Johnson has not submitted a biologics license application yet. Can Pfizer now do something with its vaccine that it couldn't do before the full authorization? Yes, they can actually promote their vaccine now. Under an EUA, you're not allowed to promote the product. Uh, Now they can.
Dr. Norman Baylor, President, CEO of Biologic Consulting, former director of the Office of Vaccines Research and Review at the FDA. So now that Pfizer's vaccine has full approval from the FDA, will companies on the fence about the vaccine change their policies? Some have already mandated vaccinations for the employees coming into the office. Others said they were waiting for this full approval. Well, it is here, right? Dr. Michelle Mello, professor of law and medicine, Stanford Law School. Doctor, do you think this is going to encourage more companies to mandate the vaccines for the employees? I think this FDA approval is what it will take to convince some of the more conservative lawyers who've been advising employers about this issue. There have been a couple of different decision points to make. One is, is it legal to require employees to get the vaccine? And the other is, is it a good idea to do that? And today's approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine resolves any lingering uncertainty about the first question. It doesn't answer the second question. Do we have wrinkles because there's other vaccines as well? We've got Moderna, we've got Johnson & Johnson. Or is this for people who are still on staff, they haven't been vaccinated yet, so the employer can say, hey, if you're going to stay on staff, we have the shot that you now need to go and get, and it's this one. Well, again, the approval is only for Pfizer. However, I think this legal uncertainty has, has really not been sustainable for some time now, in, in the sense that the federal government um, lawyers have made it very clear that the fact that there wasn't a full FDA approval is not, in fact, a legal barrier to requiring it. So even though Moderna has not yet been fully approved, I don't think it's going to be tenable for any lawyer around the country to continue to say, look, we can't mandate it until full FDA approval. And again, the question is, should we mandate it is a good idea. Now, let me ask you a, a kind of reverse question on this. Uh, so if a company, now that you have at least one vaccine that is fully approved, and even before that, I think to your point, uh, the law was was really on the side of employers if they chose to make uh, vaccines mandatory. But now that added to that mix, you have one that is fully approved. Suppose some employee working for an employer that does not want to mandate the vaccine, but an employee now, maybe a fully vaccinated employee, gets ill. Can they turn around and say that that company was legally responsible because they didn't require an approved mm -hmm. vaccine to be given? Mm -hmm. I think there are some industries where one could argue that satisfying basic standards of workplace safety requires the employer to make sure that, that most or all employees are vaccinated. And so I'm thinking about things like meatpacking, where we know they were major vectors of COVID transmission, um, and they involve high-risk populations, populations where COVID spreads um, a lot more than in other populations. Contrast that to places like schools, um, offices, you know, that's a different environment. And they're going to be judged differently if somebody was to file a claim like that, more than likely the general way that we evaluate negligence claims would be applied and the jury would be asked to, to answer the question, did they act reasonably under the circumstances? And whether or not other employers at the time were requiring mandates would be relevant information to answering that question, but it wouldn't decide the case. Yeah, do you think there's going to be some sort of tipping points? Because that's something else that's been discussed. You know, people said first it was the hospitals. Makes sense. Uh, then the universities and, uh, you know, the big guys have kind of gone school systems. Uh, some of them and others are going to get there. And so now what we wait for some of the big companies to say, yes, this is it. You're getting your shots. And then others kind of fall in line once they see them go. Yes, I think we have seen a lot of inflection points or tipping points already that starting with the colleges and universities, they all seem to feel comfortable taking the step once they knew their peers were going to be in there with them. 
uh, you know, being buffeted by the same winds of resistance that they would be. And uh, the more employers and school districts take this step, the more uh, safe, emboldened, whatever term you might choose, uh, others will feel in also taking that step. But again, not all workplaces or institutions are equally situated with regard to COVID risk or with regard to the success of voluntary vaccination programs. So I think jumping on the bandwagon is not necessarily the right call, though it might be pleasing to lawyers who worry about what happens when you take this step. But, but couldn't couldn't one make the argument, though, that regardless of the company, unless you're working for a company where you're the only employee, that allowing people in with a potentially fatal disease, and there is no question about that, is in and of itself negligent? You can certainly make that argument. And again, the jury will look around and just be asked to consider in a general way what seems reasonable under the circumstances. You know, I'd point out that we already allow companies to let people with fatal diseases come to the workplace all the time. Influenza, seasonal influenza kills a lot of people every year and very few workplaces require a flu shot. It's pretty much just hospitals and not, and not all of those and nursing homes. So, you know, this is a new way of looking at that issue, but it's not a new issue. Uh, and as a practical matter, it doesn't really get litigated very much when somebody gets sick at work. Uh, the exception is when you have a worker, again, in a highly regulated industry like meatpacking that has a, a bevy of special occupational safety regulations that they can use to bring those kinds of claims. Dr. Michelle Mello, professor of law and medicine at Stanford Law School. Coming up after this short break, some potentially good news on treating people who have COVID-19. We're still learning about COVID-19, and much of the focus has been on the vaccines. But what about treating people who've contracted the virus? We could soon see some big advancements, maybe a pill for treatments. Dr. David Bulware, infectious disease physician and scientist, University of Minnesota Medical School. He's been working on his own clinical trials of potential COVID treatments. So, Doctor, uh, this pill that they're looking at uh, lately is actually uh, antidepressant. Yeah, so uh, fluvoxamine is this new, well, I guess I shouldn't say new, but it's an old school antidepressant that's been around for a couple decades, uh, but has been newly sort of um, exciting uh, as a possible early COVID treatment. All right, but here's the thing. Uh, I remember uh, on this program, God, Mike, uh, I mean, going back months ago, we had all kinds of experts saying that, you know, the, the time is coming soon when we will have something where you can go to a pharmacy with a doctor's prescription, if you think you got COVID or you're confirmed with COVID, and you'll be able to take something like Tamiflu. Yeah, you my take Tamiflu Ethiflu. COVID Yeah, edition. exactly. Yeah. But the months have, you know, gone by, and, and now we're into 18 months of the pandemic in this country. So uh, when is this going to happen? Well, the nice thing about um, fluvoxamine is it's an existing medicine. It's already available. It's in, in uh, you know, in people's pharmacies. There certainly are a number of new medicines that are in the pipeline that, uh, you know, the big pharma companies are working on of, of antivirals uh, for coronavirus. But those still, you know, they're still in trials. They're still in development. Um, and they haven't, you know, haven't come out as yet. So let's say this one is showing some promise. How and, and why and what does it do? <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's an interesting off-target effect where it, it decreases. Well, while you think of antidepressants and they sort of work on the serotonin receptors in your brain, um, at low doses they also uh, decrease inflammation, and so uh, some of them more than others. And so fluvoxamine in particular decreases its inflammation, and so it's actually kind of promising. And so there there have been three um, large studies, well, three studies I should say, one of which is sort of very large, uh, with over. Um, over 1,400 people involved uh, in the study 
that have now looked at, at this and, and seen, is this a real is this the real deal or not? And, and what has the effect been? Well, in a study that was uh, recently released, it was released today online, uh, so it's a preprint online, that in over uh, basically 1,400 people in a multi-site study in Brazil, what they, they showed is with this um, you know, inexpensive existing medicine, there was a 30% reduction in uh, emergency room visits and hospitalizations. And so you say, well, 30%, you know, that's not great, but it's certainly a starting point. And for an, an existing medicine, you can go get it at your local pharmacy it's a ten, you know, it's a ten dollar inexpensive medicine. You know, that's actually, um, you know, a reasonable benefit. So I'm starting to feel sick. I go to the doctor. They test me. It comes up positive. Maybe they give me this at some future date if I'm just starting in, and and maybe then it keeps me from getting really worse. Correct. Yeah. Obviously, what it, this is sort of an early treatment after you've been diagnosed. Um, you know, in the first couple of days or first week, week is what they studied. Uh, and so it, where there was a 30 percent uh, reduction in people needing to go to the emergency room or uh, or being hospitalized for COVID. Now, I, I have often, I think, wrongly been accused of being cynical. Yeah. <laughs> Mike laughs. <laughs> uh, but is there a <laughs> we're both laughing. Is there a bias, though, uh, against uh, these repurposed uh, low cost drugs that might turn out to be highly effective in dealing with COVID because let's face it, pharmaceutical companies make a lot more money on new uh, therapeutics that will cost a bundle. Correct. I think one of the problems is there's no advocacy group for inexpensive, you know, cheap medicines that they cost $10. And so there's no big promotion. You won't see, you know, television advertisements for this. Um, and so there's a little bit of bias. And so, you know, the funding really needs to come from, you know, charitable foundations or the government to study this. And so that that's how this study came about was a charitable foundation that, that helped fund the study. Before we let you go, are we also quicker on the like antibody infusions at the hospitals for people who are there now? Yeah, certainly, you know, the antibody infusions are more effective. Overall, they have about a 70 percent reduction in the risk of hospitalization, you know, so compared to 30 percent. They cost about fifteen hundred dollars. Um, they're a little bit logistically more difficult because you got to, you know, a nurse has to come out to you or you got to go to the hospital to get that. We're currently dealing with a surge in COVID cases, hospitals filling up again. And now a number of the country's biggest hospitals, they are dealing with critical nursing shortages. Dr. Carolyn Clevenger, nurse practitioner, associate dean for clinical and community partnerships at the Emory School of Nursing. Doctor, how bad is this? I mean, it's pretty severe. We have uh, both a production problem and a retention problem at this point. So our health systems are seeing pretty significant turnover and loss and so many vacant positions, they would tell you they could not hire fast enough right now to fill the hole that we're losing. Is it just one factor is the burnout? You've gone through a pandemic year. It's been so bad. You've dealt with everything they had to deal with. And now here we are doing it again. And if I'm close to retirement, I want to do all I can to help people, but also... I don't know how much more of this I can take. That is spot on. We've known that we have an aging workforce in nursing for some time. And in terms of the production, getting enough nurses into the workforce, we've been limited by a number of factors, including a lack of doctorally prepared faculty to take them into our program. So we've been turning away qualified applicants to our nursing schools across this country for the past several years, decades, in fact, and then getting them in there and making sure that the quality of life at work is high. And we've been dealing with burnout even pre-pandemic. And so everything that you mentioned that's been happening over the last 18 months has really exacerbated a problem that was already there. How much uh, is money a factor? 
Well, I think pay is absolutely been an issue for the profession for some time. Although, you know, right now we are seeing incredible amounts of money thrown at the problem. And I don't think that pay alone is going to fix it. So when people come in, clearly we need to recognize them and they need to understand that they're valued. Pay is one way to show people we value them. But another resource we can put around nurses to help us really bolster them is staffing. And there's a lot of money that goes into staffing. And staffing is not just more registered nurses. It's more hands-on-deck, period. We need more direct care workers. So if we're going to throw money at the problem, it's not just uh, focused on the registered nurses themselves and making sure that they are paid in a way that um, demonstrates how valuable they are to us, but also that we put resources and staff around them to support them at work. What if I'm a nurse and I'm working at some hospital and it's a really tough go of it, and then I'm getting money thrown at me from some private health system that's all flush with cash and it looks like the grass is way greener over there. Now I'm lured away and now my hospital's in a pinch if this keeps happening. Yep, that's exactly what's happening. We're definitely seeing people being lured away by a big sign-on bonus, by high rates. Um, I think though, I mean, nurses are educated, intelligent people. And so you have to ask yourself, why are they having to pay me this much to bring me over? And so you do not just necessarily want to go somewhere for a high dollar amount, uh, especially if you want to be there long term. I mean, having professional um, development and having your entire career trajectory is also important. So I think obviously money is part of it, but it's not the only thing. In recent years, as you know, many hospitals are staffed with uh, nurses from other countries. Has that become a problem because of the pandemic? I would imagine it would. It's absolutely always been a problem for the countries where we've been draining uh, nursing uh, workforce from them. Absolutely. Um, in in this uh, country, I don't know that our inner foreign trained or international nurses are um, uh, seeing a problem in terms of the health system. They themselves, and I would group our international nurses maybe more broadly, I think that nurses of color, period, have faced uh, well-documented challenges that are more unique to their po- to those populations. And so when I think about what health systems can do to support and bolster nurses, part of that is knowing them as people and what they're going through and what they need in terms of support and paying extra close attention to our nurses of color because we know that they have additional challenges unique to those groups. If we're having a lot of people age out, what can we do to increase the graduation rates for the classes that we do have or at least uh, you know, increase those classes so we can get more nurses in? It's kind of a challenge because um, our nurses spend time in the classroom, obviously, and that's where we have the shortage of our doctorally prepared faculty, but they also spend half of their time in health systems being precepted and hosted by practicing nurses. And so in my role, if I put my university hat on, we are also short on preceptors, on units that are staffed in a healthy enough way that they can accommodate a group of students coming. So we have shortages in multiple places to get more more nurses in. But once we produce them, right, keeping them in the profession is really where it's at. And frankly, we would all be millionaires if we had the secret sauce for that. But some of the things that I I see that we've done in other fields uh, where where there is um, a similar type of workforce from a demographic perspective is we pay really close attention to caring for caregivers. I talk about that in my own clinical work and dementia family caregivers, but for paid caregivers like nurses, 
How do we prioritize the health and well-being of our nurses and their families when they get sick, especially right now when we are dealing with this pandemic where they're on the front lines and we have had shortages in supply and ability to get access to our personal protective equipment or PPE? How do we make sure that those nurses and their families get front of the line access when they get sick and need care. That's not something that is about bringing more of them in, but that's about showing how much we value them and hanging on to them. Dr. Carolyn Clevenger, nurse practitioner, associate dean for clinical and community partnerships at the Emory School of Nursing. With the changing nature of the pandemic, companies have worked and reworked their return to the office plans. Many Americans have grown used to working from home exclusively over the past year, and they don't want to return to the office full-time. So how do you find the balance? Rachel Pearson, WBBM in Chicago, with Tessa White, CEO of The Job Doctor in Salt Lake City. Tessa, first let's talk about the pros. What are the benefits of working from home? I can think of a couple. One is spending time with my pets. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, for me, focus is the biggest. Think about being in the office and how many distractions you get in a given day. And being at home allows you the opportunity to plan your day just a little bit differently if the kids are in school especially and allows you to perhaps even get more done in your workday than you could have if you were in the office. And again, we've sort of seen this shift for, away from the typical nine to five work day. It, it seems a lot more flexible, which I got to think is, is appealing to a lot of people. But mainly I'm thinking about women, right? We, we sort of have this role of being a, a, a breadwinner and a caregiver. Yes. And it's hard. I mean, it's been hard before the pandemic and it's hard and, and in some ways even harder now because now we have an, a totally new uh, piece to this lay, laid on top of this, which is how do we how do we be seen in the office, especially if we're still working remote? How do we how do we engage in a way that helps us be seen and heard? Well, and that sort of leads into the cons of working from home, right? You feel like you're missing out on mm-hmm. something because things things have to be happening, right? Even though you're not at the at the office. Yeah, but think about it this way. It was a challenge for women to be included even when we were in the workforce, trying to fit in. And, you know, we have golf games and and mentoring and other things happening that made it very difficult at times anyway. Now the dynamic's just a little bit different. But the flip side, the plus side, is that women have access to higher paying jobs now than they ever did if they have to work remote. And it may keep more women in the workforce to have that option. Well, what's your advice to those of us in in the workforce working from home who still want to feel seen, want to feel heard, want to keep moving up that ladder, so to speak? I think it really forces behavior that's good for us to develop, whether you're a man or a woman anyway. So my advice would be to be seen, be heard, be prepared. And by be seen, I think you need to make some adjustments and make sure that you set up a cadence that allows you to go in the office to, you know, actually talk to people face to face because that's a really important part of connecting. I think being heard is about if you're working remote, your opportunities are less to engage directly because you don't have that water cooler talk. And so make it count when you are on a meeting, make it count when you're heard, be concise in what you're saying, make sure you have, you have an opinion. And lastly, be prepared, you know, power, in an office isn't just about the title or about how many people that you manage. It really is about knowing the data, the numbers, the trends that are going on so that you can make contributions that are really meaningful to the business. And I think you have to be extra, extra prepared so that what you're doing is relevant and moving the needle. 
Thanks so much, Tessa White. She's the CEO of The Job Doctor, based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hospitals across the country are once again filling up with COVID patients. Some of the doctors treating those people are fed up with the vaccine hesitancy. About 75 doctors, in fact, in Palm Beach Gardens, that's in South Florida. They staged a short walkout, hoping to encourage people in their community to get vaccinated. One of the doctors saying, we are exhausted, our patients and resources are running low, and we need your help. Now, they're hopeful that full FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine will convince more people to get the shots. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, also Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.